0: Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Snipers Hide, and I'm on the line again with Brian and Amel, and we're talking burgers, no BS, BC. I mean, the ballistic knowledge bombs that are getting dropped here. I mean, this is like World War II strategy. It's just coming down, and and you know, it's raining down on everybody. Uh, welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks for being on. Good to be here.
1: Good to be here, Frank.
0: Yep, yep. Really appreciate it. We're uh, just some great feedback and uh, everything. We'll we'll go into some Q and A in this episode because you guys have been asking some questions out there listening, and and we're gonna get caught up. I think we we pretty much talked on the the short mid range and then out to ELR with with um, not only what you guys are doing through burger but through uh, AB and, and your team shooting and and things like that. But we want to get into sort of the final chapter, and probably one of the most important chapters, is we want to talk wind drift and and how we're looking at wind drift through um, both Brian in the BC and the Bullet side of the house, and then Amel as sort of like the wind god coach out there, um, part of your AMU background. Um, I mean, you're brought in as the wind ringer, so uh, it, it's it's important to kind of go down that. Um, that direction, uh, w- since we have you guys on the phone.
1: Yeah, happy to talk about that. stuff. I, I think, um, uh, I think one th- one thing that people don't really uh, understand is, you know, Brian, Brian's got a lot of uh, experience and knowledge, and I think understanding how, uh, like, how uniformity of BC and you know all the things about, you know, not only interior ballistics but the sort of standard deviations of bc how that can affect wind drift as well is really important you know and sort of the mechanism of wind i mean what well, you know brian has done seminars i've been really fortunate enough to to like be able to attend a lot of these seminars and the actual you know the mechanism of wind drift is uh something i think that a lot of people don't really understand um uh and Maybe it it makes sense for Brian to maybe start off by talking a little bit about, um, you know, how bullets actually drift in the wind and, you know, how ballistic solvers solve for wind drift before. And then then maybe maybe I'll talk a little bit about um, how I determine, you know, a, a shorthand version of how I determine how much wind is out there.
0: Nice. Yeah, that's perfect yeah
2: so this is this is best done with graphics. I have a couple of slides that uh, show the geometry of this, but I'll do my best to articulate um, the you know configurationally what's going on with wind deflection. So to, to start the build up so what the first thing you have to understand about um, wind deflection, consider a bullet fired from a barrel in a no wind condition. okay We'll just start out there. Now the aerodynamic drag vector that is acting to slow the bullet down, is directed. It's directly against the bullet's direction of movement. So if it's going straight forward and there's no wind, the aerodynamic drag vector points straight back out the back of the bullet and slows it directly down. Now that it's important to understand the magnitude of that aerodynamic force. So for a bullet to go from say 3,000 feet per second muzzle velocity down to half that speed, you know 1,500 feet a second in like a second and a half, just using rough, you know typical numbers you're talking about 20 to 30 Gs of aerodynamic force acting to decelerate that bullet. 20 or 30 times the gravity um, is, is how quickly that's the force being applied to the bullet. And so now that we understand that, we have that, let's say it was just called a 25 G drag vector pointing straight out the back of the bullet to slow it down. Okay, now let's introduce the wind and consider what happens. So what happens when you fire a bullet into a crosswind is it sees like a 3,000-foot-per-second headwind coming at it from the bullet's perspective. And if you have a 10-mile-an-hour crosswind, that's like a roughly 15-foot-per-second crosswind. So you have 3,000-foot-per-second coming from the head and 15 feet-per-second from the side. Now, if you were to draw a triangle, a proportional triangle, using 3,000 as one leg and 15 as the other leg, you would get a very small angle, okay, and but that is the angle that the bullet actually rotates to in relation to your line of sight. The bullet will weather vane into the effective oncoming airflow, which is is tilted a little bit because of that crosswind. Now, now you've got the bullet flying downrange at a little bit of a crab angle, a very tiny angle, but the drag vector, the aerodynamic drag vector, is still back through the geometric center of that bullet. Now, the problem is now that aerodynamic drag vector, that 25 G's, isn't pulling the bullet straight back. It's pulling the bullet mostly back and a little bit to the side. And it's that little bit of a lateral side component to the aerodynamic drag vector that acts to pull the bullet away from the line of sight. That's how wind deflection works.
0: Right. So it, it, it's, it's got, like you were saying, it's kind of got that little crab and, and these angles are small because some people over exaggerate that angle. Um, so it, it's, it's definitely smaller, but that's what we're correcting for and why it tends to want to float to the side that little bit, um, which is a grid yeah, without a the tiny, graphs and charts.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a tiny angle. and And if you do represent it on a graph or on a graphic of some kind, you have to exaggerate it to even see it because obviously like the, the bullet's making a round hole in paper. Even if you're shooting through an incredibly strong crosswind and you shoot into paper, um, the bullet hole is still going to look round. It's not going to look like a keyhole where the bullet's flying at like a 45. You would need a 3,000 foot per second crosswind. Um, That's like 1,500 mile an hour wind in order to make the bullet fly at a 45 degree angle. But but that's what would happen, right? This is a bigger problem with uh, uh, like the waste gunner's and, you know, the bombers in World War II had yep. the waste gunners shooting like into a several hundred mile an hour crosswind. Um, so these there are cases where you do have extreme crosswinds and the bullets do fly at more extreme crab angles related to the line of sight. Um, but for like normal stationary platforms where you're looking at, you know, usually usually under 20 mile an hour crosswinds, the, the angle that, is, that the bullet flies with is too small to see in like a bullet hole or anything like that. But remember you're dealing with 25 G's and even the slightest little bit of an angle is going to, um, pull that bullet away from the line of sight by a noticeable amount.
0: Nice. Nice. So one of the, go ahead.
2: One of the, one of the myths or misunderstandings is that, you know, the wind blows on the side of a bullet. I've heard people ask me for a side BC for a bullet. They're like, well, the BC, you know, that explains how the bullet slows down. But what about when the wind blows on the side of it? And that's, that, I mean, I, I, there's no, there's no stupid questions. Like that's, in, it's an insightful question, but it's just not how it works, because because the very nature of stability, the definition of stability is that a bullet or projectile of any kind will align its axis with the net oncoming airflow, and because it does that that is gnawing out any wind blowing on the side of the bullet. The wind doesn't blow on the side of the bullet. The bullet points into the wind, into the effective wind, and so that you don't get cross flow over the, over the bullet. It just doesn't happen. The, the 1BC that you have is the one that characterizes how well the bullet retains its velocity in the forward direction, which is always in the forward direction because it's always aligning with the airflow. So the 1BC really is all you need for calculating wind deflection as well as, you know, velocity retention.
1: And uh, you know, my takeaway from like sort of that that explanation and kind of like envisioning the graphic in your head of the bullet kind of crabbing at an angle and going downrange and pointed into the wind and creating that sort of vector where now it's sort of crabbing and because of gyroscopic Stability and it's actually moving to the side now, you know, I'm not like a math guy. Like I, you know, I almost got held back in Mr. DeChico's seventh grade algebra class um, in New York. But um, the thing is that once that angle is incurred, that bullet is now moving from the very beginning that, that, that it starts nosing into the wind. So it starts telling you right away what you should start thinking about, like where the wind matters. Um, because it's, unless other wind hits it and changes that, that bullet angle, because it's always going to nose into the wind, like, you know, that's lots of these, uh, sort of people like, Oh, I always look at the wind at the target because the bullets going the slowest. So, so it, it, it can kind of inform your opinion about what, you know, understanding the mechanism of, of wind drift will, uh, will help influence and shape your, uh, where you're looking at the wind for effect.
0: No, totally, and and I agree, and I was going to kind of bring up because you spot too, I notice when we're behind people, you can see the difference between a wind drift trace and sort of a canted trace where it, it lays over in one way and the, and the trace looks completely different to the side versus a wind uh, trace that is coming back sort of onto the target because we've shot into the wind to push it back. So, um, you know, th- there's definitely an, an, an observational difference when you're looking at trace downrange.
2: Right. Yeah, when you're seeing the trace downrange, you're mostly seeing the tail, right, the disturbed air. Right. And that tail is getting blown in the wind, and so it's you're seeing a lot of displacement on that, whereas uh, a shot that, that misses from cant, that's just a, a, a poorly aimed shot. Like, it went straight to where... It, the barrel was pointed, um, uh, but it didn't go there because of wind. So yeah, I can't say I've ever like seen them side by side, but I've seen them both in different conditions and yeah, they're, they're very different. Um, what, one more thing to kind of wrap up the, uh, the, the mechanism, you know, cause a lot of people have trouble with this weather veining and crab angle thing. So if you consider other flight vehicles, like, you know, airplanes, have you ever seen an airplane land in a strong crosswind? Okay. It doesn't land straight. They try to straighten it out at the end as much as they can so the wheels, you know, line up. But it's, you know, it's coming down at quite an angle in relation to the runway. And for the case of an airplane, the reason the airplane doesn't blow away in the wind is because it has thrust. It can generate thrust equal to its drag and fly straight line. It'll fly straight line, but at a crab angle because its axis is rotated to align with the airflow. So when you have thrust equal to drag, you don't have deflection. Okay, so if you could have bullets that could thrust, that could generate thrust equal to their drag, they wouldn't have any wind deflection either. It'd be, you know, it'd just be like in cruise. Now, if you if you continue to increase thrust, like if you had thrust that was much higher than the drag, like for a rocket, what happens with rockets, it's the same thing. When they're fired into a crosswind, that crosswind rotates them To point into the wind. And now because they have more thrust and drag, they will actually accelerate upwind for the for the period of time they're thrusting. Now, most rockets only thrust for a short time and then they burn out and they drift most of the way. So after the engine burns out, it's like a bullet, it'll drift downwind. But the effect of a strong crosswind on a rocket is it actually makes it fly upwind. It reorients the the direction the rocket is pointed to align with that crosswind, and then the thrust just pushes it into the wind. So if you think about a bullet as a rocket with no thrust, it's it's easier to see how that drag vector, because the drag is much greater, there is no thrust. It just results in the bullet being pulled away from the line of sight in the direction the wind is blowing. So just a a little more context around that idea um, helps some people understand you know in the broader context of where bullets fit in with like airplanes and rockets and how thrust
0: matters. No, totally. And and I yep. think the one thing to take away real quick is that when you do see graphics like you had mentioned because I think this is part of confusion, the images are are an exploded view, I guess is a way to put it, and they look bigger than they really are. Well, uh, like one of the things is like the elliptical squirrel how small it is, but the graphics make it look huge. Um, and, and so that's kind of, I think part of where the confusion comes in is because in order to demonstrate it, the lines would be on top of each other. You, you make them look big. And so people understand this is what it's doing, but it's doing it really, really small.
2: That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, you have to exaggerate it to see it, but that can sometimes lead to more confusion unless you explain it
1: well.
0: Yeah, no, great. Good job. Go ahead, uh, I, I know you had something to, uh, add.
1: Oh, I was just going to say anecdotally, you know, I, uh, I have a friend of mine. He's a, you know, he's a NRA, uh, shooter, uh, really good one, you know, high master distinguished rifleman. He's in the army and he's a little bird pilot. And, uh, he told me he's got all this, you know, shooting background and he said it really screwed him up because when he's, you know, shooting rockets out of his little bird in Afghanistan, uh, he had to aim downwind. He has, you can't, you know, he's just aiming upwind in the wind. Um, But with the rockets, he, you know, had to kind of train his brain that he's got to point that grease that grease pencil crosshair on his on his windscreen downwind from the rocket in order to get the rocket
0: to hit the target. <laughs> yes, yeah, leading the target. Yeah, <laughs> rockets. Um, so. Brian, now kind of go. How does that BC number work for your? Um, are you guys there? I'm here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got quiet for I'm a second. Here. Oh, is that, how does the BC numbers go into your calculators? And and how are you sort of managing that side of the the the, the drift side, like letting the prediction come in?
2: Right. So the. So there's sort of a cascading effect where, where that a ballistic solver goes through um, the BC that you put in is characterizing the bullet's ability to penetrate the air. Okay, in, in words, that's what that number is is quantifying, and it's made of the bullet's sectional density, which is its mass and its cross section, and also a form factor that describes its aerodynamic drag, the aerodynamic shape, and so that's all that's encompassed in the BC, and that. Through the calculations of, you know, deceleration, F equals M A, you know, things will slow down in proportion to the force that's applied to them, um, or speed up, and and their mass. So it's really from first principles of physics. Um, this is the aerodynamic force that a bullet will experience at this flight condition, and then the solver says, okay, well that generates this much drag that will cause this much mass to slow down this many feet per second in a time step, you know, they, these solvers, um, they integrate the equations of motion numerically, and they typically step at a thousand Hertz. So every thousandth of a second, um, you propagate that state into the future, which is, you know, just inches. And then now you're at a new condition. You're at a lower velocity. The aerodynamic drag is a little less and you're a little bit further down range and a little bit of time has elapsed. Now using that as a starting point, you propagate that into the future. And really the baseline thing that you have to to integrate is the bullet's velocity from the velocity. If you know the velocity at every point, you can know the time of flight to a target. You can know um, the wind drift because wind drift is a function of lag time, which is the difference between the actual and the vacuum time of flight. Um, Now the interesting thing about wind and ballistic solvers is it's where there's a real breakdown that happens because In a ballistic solver, you usually just get one chance to put the wind in. It's, you know, 10 miles an hour from 9 o'clock or whatever you assess. Um, But that's probably the biggest disconnect between what's going on in the simulation and what goes on in the real world. Because in the real world, you never have a constant wind speed from a single direction for the entire trajectory. It's just, it's not reality. Um, Gravity is nice like that. You can count on gravity being the same pretty much everywhere on the Earth for the entire trajectory. Um, but wind is not like that. And it's, why, it's one of the reasons why it's our biggest problem. Um, wind is different at every point, and you have to somehow collectively sum all of that up into an input. Now, we used to have ballistics programs with multiple wind inputs, like from, you know, you could determine the range segments and what the wind speed and direction was at each segment. And we still have that in the uh, PC program, the Applied Ballistics Analytics software. Um, you can, cause that software is made to actually have live inputs from, uh, an array of wind sensors that you put down range, but you can put them in manually too, just to play games. The reason we took them out of the mobile apps is because it's just too cumbersome in the field to like, by the time you figure out what the wind speed and direction is at three or five segments, it's changed. It's something else, you know? So it's, it wasn't really practical. Um, so we took it out but there's nothing in the ballistic solver that prevents it from calculating a dynamic wind field. We just can't get a dynamic wind field into the solver, you know, a shooter through the interface. It's, it's just not possible. Now there's technologies being worked with, you know, optical wind readers and, you know, different ways of generating measured sensory wind data that can be fed into ballistic solvers and, whenever those technologies come online, the solvers are ready, you know, all they need is that input. Um, But unfortunately, you know, state of the art now where most people are limited with one, you know, one speed, one direction, that's it. But because the solver actually operates at a thousand Hertz, it's you could give it a, a different wind speed and direction at every thousandth of a second along its flight. And it would chug along and pump an answer out that's consistent with that wind input. Um that but that wind that resolution of wind data is not available to us.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a great point that it's not that straight line. It, it it's kind of I, I like a zigzaggy line and it moves around all weird. And so the, the I I've, I've had a problem here in Pike National Forest. Um it was an eight hundred yard shot and in the way the, the forest was and, and we're at ten thousand feet above sea level, just standing there. The only way that you can get a solution that actually worked was to have the three zones, um, turned on, but it was not practical because it changed so often. You know, as a, as an exercise after the fact, you can go, hey, you know, how do I get the right the answer that I used? And, and, and you'd have to turn those zones on, but like you said, it was way too slow to do it manually, um, for anything practical other than to say, well, how. Could the, could the solver have done it? Yes, the solver can. It's just like you said; you had to put in the multiple inputs, and then it had no problem spitting out a correct answer. But how practical is that exercise?
2: Yeah, and that and that brings us back to Emil and the, the insight that that you can develop of, uh, by you know paying attention to these wind fields, doing the calculations like at, at home on the computer, and because you, at some point in the field for application you need to boil that down to one speed and direction and if you're able to look out and say okay well, I think it's doing this here and that there and then maybe a little something different at the end you you have to be able to distill that down into inputs that would be consistent with the overall effect of the wind and Emil can explain how he does that a lot better he's really good at it
0: Totally Emil on you man talk yeah. talk wind <laughs> Yeah
1: Yeah yeah, so um, so the first thing, I mean, the the for for the user, you know, you know, so the solver, you know, the solver is thinking about, you know, what is the wind speed and it's matching it against the velocity of the bullet all the way down range, of computing it. But that wind speed that the solver's working with um, is is based on the sort of the, the the net wind speed, so like the full value effect of that wind. So you know, you can use whatever kind of term you want, you know, the the true crosswind or crosswind or whatever it is, but whatever that is, that's a combination of the, the wind's effect from, you know, direction and speed. So those, you know, we've got the old school terms of no value and half value and full value, but in order to be successful, especially in ELR type shooting, Um, I, I think that if you can isolate the wind angle to within about 15 degrees, and if you can isolate the wind velocity to within about two miles per hour, you're going to hit a lot of targets. Um, uh, that to me is kind of what what kind of puts you into the, uh, it, it puts you into the neighborhood of like the quote elite wind reader. So the elite wind reader is a guy that can isolate the wind direction within 15 degrees or that's half an hour on the clock, you know, so for each hour is 30 degrees, right? 12 o'clock is zero and nine and three o'clock is 90. So 1230 would be uh, 15 degrees. One o'clock is 30, et cetera. So if you can get the angle of the wind within 15 degrees or half an hour and that wind speed, then that lets you make a very simple math arithmetic calculation. So that's kind of like the first step in my process is I'll look down range I'll look for some indicators about the wind speed. That's kind of the first thing that catches your eye, anyway. Like, what are the leaves moving on the trees? I see that tall grass moving. Um, you know, I see the dust blowing across thing. You know, a guy's spotting scope got blown over by the wind. You're looking at velocity, um, whether you're using the kestrel or not. And then once you figure out that velocity, you just figure out the, the angle. And all that stuff is easiest to do right where you're at. Um, And my big trick that I use, if you can, the most effective way for determining wind angle is using your optics, Uh, finding, you know, when we look out, we see mirage, you know, a lot of times. And if you have the ground in proximity to your line of sight, line of fire, you're going to get mirage in most cases. Um, And mirage is a great tool for me i use it more for direction than for velocity a lot of the old school shooters would go yeah you see when the ripples look like that and if and they go up at a 15 degree angle if and that means i was never one of those guys that really put a lot of stock in like the mirage looks like that that means it's exactly 2.5 miles an hour that's difficult to do and that appearance of mirage changes from location to location as i'm sure you know so um so what I use Mirage mainly for is finding the direction. So we know that a zero value wind uh, gives us that boil effect. You know, with the wind, you don't really see a direction in the Mirage. It kind of goes straight up. So what I'll do is I'll rotate my optics um, off the line of sight to the target until I find the boil in the Mirage. So if I have a wind coming from 1 o'clock, I'll rotate my optics so I'm looking directly into the wind into 1 o'clock. And when I see the Mirage boil – Bang, I've got my direction. So once you've got that direction, you can use anything you want. You can use your wristwatch. You can estimate the the clock number by eye. If you really want, like in King of Two Mile, I was getting into the weeds as much as I would shoot an azimuth to the target with a compass. Then I would shoot an azimuth into the wind angle. So I'd line up my spotting scope with the boil and I'd shoot an azimuth from the target to the boil and then i would figure out what that angle is so if the boil was at 27 degrees and my from my target i knew that the sign of 27 degrees is my percentage of wind and then once you have that wind percent you just multiply it by the observed velocity then you have that effect you have that full value effect and then you can look at your solver um, for full value or use a number of tools to get your initial number. And that initial number where you're at is huge. Um, one thing that really, uh, opened my eyes on this was, you know, Nick Fatabo is, uh, a guy that works with Brian and, and, uh, Dan Perriard is one of the guys that, uh, Nick has with him, And he wrote a fantastic article and it's on, uh, shameless plug for uh, Nick Vitale's website. It's nvisti.com So it's n v i s t i.com. And on that website, he's got a bunch of PDFs and articles you can kind of download and look at. And one of them is where the wind matters. And uh, this is a, you know it's scientific extrapolation of like what the wind effect is over time, which is distance, right? For velocity, so in Up to you know, in up to about transonic range, up to Mach 1.2, 1.3, the first half from you to the target, or the first third from you to the target, makes up usually 55 to like 60 percent of the total wind solution. So, the first third is usually about half of the total wind, and then the second third is about 35 or so percent. And the last third is only about 20 odd percent. And as you go out to distance and as you start going uh, into transonic and like towards sub, the last third gets weighed more heavily. But usually for almost all the shooting that we do, the first third and the second third are pretty much your entire wind solution. So I look out at the terrain, and if the first third agrees with the second third, I'm like, I'm good. I'm just looking at that. If it's an 800 yard shot or you know, a thousand yard shot, I'm looking at that first, you know, 350 or so yards, um, and then I'm making my wind call off of that with very, very high confidence.
0: Nice. That so that that article is awesome. Yeah. Sorry, didn't it mean to. It is. No.
1: It really is. No, no, no. It really is. Um, because it kind of lays it out in a way that, you know, uh a couple different ways uh one of those ways that they that that dan lays it out will resonate with with you of like understanding of why the wind uh how the wind sort of aggregates as it goes over distance and this is again all based on you know time of flight uh time of flight calculations and that drift you know sort of based on a solver so i really recommend everybody go to that because right then that informs your view as a shooter or a spotter of like where you're looking, you know, um, you know, like, and, you know, sometimes of course every rule has exceptions, you know, so if you're shooting in a place that the back half of your terrain is completely different, like maybe it's wide open in your first half, your first third is completely covered and shielded from the wind. Well then obviously you're going to have to look at the last third or the last half. But for uniformity of terrain, focus really on that first third of wind because um, that's probably the most important.
0: I have and a. Then, oh, oh, go ahead. Um,
1: go ahead. Nice. No, no, I, had I, had
0: ta- I had a tangent question, but I um I uh, go finish your thought and then I'll ask you this because this came up um down the road, but I while it's fresh in my mind, I wanted to jump on it before I forgot it. But go ahead and finish your thought, Amol. Sorry to interrupt.
1: No, no. I was actually I was about to to transition to the the last thing I you know looking at is sort of the hype over the over the uh, how high your bullet gets in the air, and that's kind of like a different sort of sub question. So go ahead and hit me with yours, and then I'll move on to my next sort of topic.
0: When we talk the wind rose and and you're talking that that first third direction, I had a conversation with David while back. Uh, David Tubb for everybody listening, and um, I think it was at one of the King of Two Miles or it was at the Precision Rifle Expo. Um, And he kind of questioned whether or not a full value wind might be closer to a two o'clock versus a three because it's and he equated it to a boat on the water um, with currents that it's easier to turn the boat when the wind hits at that little bit of off angle versus hitting it flush on the side. And I wonder if you had any thought on that um, mindset. Well,
1: I, I hear Brian gearing
0: up. Yep, I know yep, me too. to jump on this one, I'm like <laughs> a hobo on a ham
1: sandwich. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I will, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll just, I'll just say this, um, you know, uh, when you look at wind percentages, uh, uh, you know, when you're at a two o'clock wind, you're at 87% of the wind. Right. So like my field, my field wind sniper math is, you know, I kind of round a lot of these numbers. So like, Going around the uh, going around the clock, starting from twelve o'clock, ending at three on every half an hour. The percentages that amil uses are 25 percent, fifty percent for a one o'clock, seventy-five percent for one thirty, uh, and then at two o'clock, I just rounded up to ninety percent because the neural numbers are on eighty-seven percent. So I two o'clocks ninety, and then anything past two, I call full value. Right. So. Because I'm less than, um, you know, I'm only a couple percent off. So, for practicality purposes, I kind of consider a two o'clock wind at full value for trying to do the math in the moment. But I, I will have to defer to Brian on the overturning. And I don't know what Dave said.
0: Yeah, no, yeah, just it just came to me and kind of we're, we're talking on that sort of plane. So, maybe Brian can throw some insight onto whether he thinks that bullet might be moving a little quicker at the at the angle versus at the at the sort of three o'clock
2: um the short answer is is no the 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 actual deflection um of a bullet in a crosswind is is proportional to the geometric or trigonometric value of the crosswind so three o'clock and nine o'clock are maximums. um and to to elaborate a little bit I know that you know shooters love thinking about shooting and we love thinking about bullets flying and trying to relate it to things that we know. Um, and so we get uh, analogies to boats, we get analogies to tops, and we get analogies to everything that's like in our um, sphere of experience, you know, like that we can, that we've seen and we kind of have an intuitive feel for how it physically works. And we try to uh, apply that to, to bullets. And, and some some of those analogies are are accurate in, in some ways at uh, conveying what happens and some of them aren't. Um, the... You know, there's there's a big difference between a boat crossing on the surface of a river, um, with, that's being propelled, the, as as opposed to a bullet. Like none of us have experience flying at Mach three, and and knowing what the wind feels like. Like to put it in perspective, from the point of view of a bullet, you know, when we're standing on that hill in Wyoming and at the Night Force ELR match, and the wind was hitting us at 60 miles an hour. I mean, as a human, not from Wyoming, that was a pretty intense experience for me. Like I'm, you know, happen to like take a wide stance to not get blown over and you couldn't hear, like all of your senses are affected and you're like, God damn it. This is an extreme experience for, for me, you know, as, as a human, but a, a bullet that is flying at Mach two or Mach three, 60 miles an hour plus or minus is really not that big of a deal. It, a bullet doesn't experience a, a wind the same way that, that people do. And the, the deflection, the mechanism of deflection is is not what we might uh, make analogies to from our experience of you know bigger things moving slower so that's it, but it's a very common thing um there was uh we we just had one a, a little bit ago that was a similar kind of analogy that just didn't apply um a, bl- a wind blowing on the side of a bullet i think that's what it was they're, they're reasonable um assumptions or reasonable insights but the the physics of it are really unimaginable to people that haven't experienced being a bullet, which none of us have. That's where we trust math. You know, that's that's how we got to the moon. You know, we didn't get there because we knew what it felt like to be a Saturn V rocket. You know, we used the principles of science and designed a solution to things that we've never experienced before.
0: No, that's an awesome um, answer. I appreciate that. that I mean, and that's one of those questions because it does sci- sort of make sense. Like, well, gee, is it easier to turn the bullet? It might be. And that's why we ask guys like you these questions, and it, and it was something that popped in my head when Emil was was speaking on sort of the the side deflections, and you know right now we were looking at the bullet coming from sort of that that wind rose side. Now you know we're going to transition into looking at it in wind gradients and elevation, but um yeah I just had that question floating in my head, and it and it and it it kind of it tickled a past conversation, and it was worth exploring. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, there's well, there's one more short path. I think we have time for it. I'll before we change subject. I know we this is the second time we put Amos wind gradient off, but while we're so we don't have to shift gears back again. A uh, common question shooters ask is about you know what matters more, the wind speed or direction. You know we talked about the where the wind matters along the trajectory, but you know for for guys getting started, they're like, should I pay? What is more important um, to get right? And that depends entirely on the general vicinity of the wind is coming from. Okay. If you have a near full value wind, like from two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, or the same 60 degree spread on the other side, um, you're very insensitive to small changes in wind direction in that case, you know, going from two to three o'clock, that's only a few percent change in effective crosswind. But if you have a, a near head or tailwind and you're changing direction slightly one side or the other. It's a a very slight direction change, but it can mean the difference between a left deflection and a right deflection, you know, uh, 25 or 15%. So a 30% window and just going uh, a few degrees either side of center. So if the wind is coming from the side, it's insensitive to direction. If the wind is coming from the head or tail, it's very sensitive to direction. And the opposite is true for wind speed. If you've got a near crosswind, then slight pickups or let offs in the wind in the crosswind are going to be like one for one directly proportional to your wind deflection. But if you've got fluctuations in wind speed from the head or tail, you're only getting a small amount of that speed change that manifests as crosswind deflection. Does that make
1: sense? Totally. Yeah. The, um, and you know, for, for most of the winds that we see, uh, at least I don't know, you know we we tend not to see a lot of full value winds i don't know why that is um but you know most of the time when you go out to the range the wind is somewhere between you know uh uh you know sort of one to 12 o'clock ish all the way to sort of three o'clock you know uh, so or 12 to nine or nine to six or whatever so um for me i kind of look at it the same way brian does uh if I am dealing with a wind that might be fluctuating from say 1230, 1 o'clock and all of a sudden kick over to 2 o'clock wind, well then value or direction is much more important than like a slight error in velocity because you know the wind goes from a maybe a 1230 wind over to a two o'clock wind, well, you've just increased your you've increased your value by you know 60 something percent. So that's a huge miss, um, you know, at a constant velocity of like, say 10 miles an hour. Um, but if in terms of a, like, a like a real strong, uh, full value wind, you really need to start gauging velocity and all the things that are out there for you to look at velocity. So, you know, circling all the way back to the beginning, like when you're determining wind speed, you need, the first thing you do when you get out to a range is need to look at what your indicators are, you know? Uh, is your is your indicator uh, is your indicator something you can see while you're on the rifle? Um, is your indicator only something you can see when you're holding your kestrel or looking behind you at a tree? You need to start figuring stuff out immediately before you shoot as to what you're going to be looking at during during the stage or the engagement or whatever, so that you can keep an up to date sort of feedback loop going of both velocity and direction. But once you're in the moment and shooting, it's hard to see directions, direction changes. Once you're in the moment and shooting, it's really velocity changes that you're seeing. So you need to isolate those and figure what those look like before you start shooting. So you can see them and adjust for them as they change.
0: Nice, nice. Now we can jump into the wind gradients because that's that's an important element when we're shooting. The, the farther out we shoot, the more important the gradients become. So we'll go uninterrupted yeah. with gradients. <laughs>
1: yeah so i mean look and then the caveat to talking about about wind gradients is that um you know so what you know basically what what we're talking about when we say wind gradient is you know the basic thing like you know that when you go from like laying down to standing up you can usually sense more wind like on your head or your face right and when you're trying to estimate the wind and you're using a tachometer, you should hold it as high up in the air as you can to try to, you know, get a representative uh, number of what the bullet is going to be doing downrange. So wind increases. The higher you get off the ground, the, the the more the wind increases. And the basic reason for that is that uh, friction from surface from the surface condition will slow down the wind. So the more cluttered or the more uh, the more more terrain features your buildings rocks you know hills hedges you know vegetation trees the more of that stuff that's on the surface the more it slows the wind down and as the wind gets higher in the air as elevation increases and the wind clears those obstacles the wind will speed up so that's kind of what we're talking about it's also referred to as wind shear so Theoretically, it's a very well understood thing. It's just math um, to predict the what the rate of wind speed increases with altitude. And it's used a lot in like, you know, the guys that make the windmills for power generation and architects designing big buildings um, to kind of calculate what the wind load is on a building or how fast. The the windmill is going to spin and figure out where to place these things so you can make the most power. So it's very well understood science. But as shooters, you know, we do have to understand that it's not – these are not – they're not deterministic. And that's a word that I kind of got from Brian. I had to look up exactly what Brian meant when he kept saying non-deterministic. And non-deterministic, the definition I found was that it's assumed – deterministic means it's assumed to occur with certitude so if it's non-deterministic it's not assumed to occur with certitude and so how wind gradient increases it's generally associated with the roughness of the ground so what that surface condition is and since that surface condition is rarely uniform our numbers and our calculations are usually not exactly right but there are some uh There are some kind of assumptions that we can make. So uh, anybody can kind of get access to like this information. You just can, I mean, Google it, go on Wikipedia. There's articles about wind shear and wind gradient. And there's formulas out there for how this is done. And usually the formulas relate to uh, sort of surface conditions. So they kind of class land types or surface types through everything from like the smooth water surface of a lake um, all the way to like large cities with buildings and skyscrapers and stuff
0: like that. I have, a, so, um, there's a PDF on snipers hide from the smoke jumpers that talk about that. So if somebody wants to yeah, download I, it, I've read that. Yep. And yep, and so I've that one that. does pretty good for terrain that we deal with being in the, in the field. Yep. So, yep, for sure. Yeah. So,
1: uh, so you're making say so again, so something like that, great resource. It makes assumptions based on, uh, what the you know what the terrain is and what that rate is so what i you know i've actually i've done a bit of thinking about this and um i've kind of looked at like extremes right so like the you know our normal our normal type of shooting terrain you know if you like if you use like a category like these roughness types if you know if you look at okay agricultural land with like a few buildings and high hedges and blah, blah blah If you look at that sort of roughness type, you're seeing uh, like, for example, then the other part is like you have to know how high your bullet is. So if you're shooting at short range, the bullet really never gets far enough off the ground to have any sort of a uh, a wind gradient. So people that are thinking about this are worried about it. Unless you're shooting, I think, to where your bullet is, you know, up above 8, 10 meters you know, we're up above 20, 30 feet. And to put that in perspective, um, a, a 308 at a thousand meters, you know, your height, your max ord is around 18, 19 feet, something like that. Right. So you'd have to get, um, you know, on, on kind of normal rolling terrain, uh, you're really probably dealing with less than 10 percent of a total wind gradient. So that means that the wind speed from where you're measuring it, like six feet in the air up to the maximum height, I mean, 18 or 20 feet in the air, it's probably only increasing maybe up to 10%. So if you add 10% to your wind call um, at that extreme range for a 308, you're probably taking into account what, what the wind gradient effect is. If you're shooting over like rough terrain, forests, you know, all that other stuff, you might see a hundred percent increase of of that wind gradient but the bullet really isn't in that spot for that long but if you're shooting at so i ran while we were talking earlier like if i'm shooting a six millimeter like a 105 burger hybrid at a mile okay my max ord's about 50 feet okay it's 50 feet in the air and you know at at 50 feet in the air uh You know, you're talking, depending upon the terrain, you could have, you know, as little as maybe less than 10% of wind increase up to, you know, maybe 150, close to 200% wind increase. So it's really dependent upon the terrain and upon the height of the bullet. There's really, unfortunately, there's no real, you know, hard and fast kind of rules of thumb you can apply. What I would recommend people do if they want to understand this is, there's even lots of these online calculators. If you just if you type in, a uh, wind gradient calculator, you'll find a couple of these different. You know whether it's a university or it's a company that makes like power generation windmills. Um, they'll have a calculator right there. You can enter stuff in. They'll have the roughness classifications, the land cover types. You enter in the coefficient. You know, so it's usually a number uh, that represents it's an exponent so that that it plugs into this formula or you can actually find the formula it's called a power law formula you could find the power law formula and build your own spreadsheet and uh, and input that stuff yourself and you can see the different sort of the the differences in what that wind gradient is uh, so that's i don't it's very tricky to kind of tell people, hey, if it's this, do that. My advice is for people to kind of go and look at data and see, and then look at where where you're shooting, and then do some experiments. Like, hey, if I'm shooting where, if I'm shooting where my bullet is, like extreme example is, you know, at here. Um, I have I pulled up my thing here. So with like a 375 uh, class bullet at 2500 meters. Uh, that bullet's 30 meters in the air, right? So, in the very, very smooth range, um, you know, kind of like a flat range type of deal, your wind increase is only 12%. But over really rough, rocky terrain, the wind increase could be 290% at maximum ordinate, which is 30 meters in the air. So, m- events like King of Two Mile or any extreme long range event. It really becomes important, but for I would say stuff out to where your bullet's not more than you know, eight meters, nine meters in the air. It's not huge, right? So look at the data. It's definitely a real effect, um, but it's hard to quantify because uniform isn't really ter- isn't really uniform. Is you know what I'm saying so. Yeah.
0: No. totally. Uh, great. Great answers, man. That's that's like yeah. that's masterclass wind stuff right there. Uh, I see Brian's jumping in. Maybe he's got a little piece to add.
2: Yeah, so I guess you guys can hear when I come off mute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, one uh, caveat or additional statement to the, this conversation: um, you know, we're referencing the height of the bullet over the line of sight when we talk about the trajectory. Um, but when you talk about wind gradient, uh, the the height that's referenced is the height above the ground. And so, if you're, let's say, you're shooting across level ground all the way from you to the target. The height of the bullet over the line of sight pretty much is the height of the bullet over the ground. But in many cases, in shooting long range, you're shooting over a gully or over a canyon where you know the bullet might be close to the ground until it clears the edge of, of the cliff or whatever. And now all of a sudden the, the bullet might only be two feet above the line of sight, but that could be three hundred feet above the ground. So now that air can be blowing, you know, through that canyon. And the, the point at which your bullet is in the wind could be hundreds of feet above the ground at that point, but only a few feet above your line of sight. So it's, and, and that's where these wind gradient, like the, the calculations are made for stationary things. Like I'm a building, I'm always right here on the ground. What's the wind gradient as you go up in stories or the same for windmills. But when you're a bullet and you're traversing over terrain, um, you, it's you got to consider like how far the bullet is flying above the ground. And that's the height that you could
1: use in the wind gradient calculation. Nice. Yeah, it's a really good point, Brian. Really good point. Um, and it's something that you know that I do like. You know, shooting in the, uh, you know, every once in a while I get a chance to go out to Idaho and do some uh, shooting, and uh, it's all across canyons and things like that. So the problem is you know our ways of our ways of estimating wind direction and speed sometimes if you're shooting over a canyon you have zero knowledge about what that wind is in the middle of the air between you know two major terrain features because the wind could be get, could be changed by the terrain you're on you know so uh, and you can't see mirage because you need the ground proximity to your line of sight in order to see mirage so any mirage you see looking across a canyon is coming from the ground right in front of you it's not coming from the air in the middle of the canyon so you know you have to like you have to be pretty smart and that's a whole other topic that we probably don't have time to even get into today but like terrain shooting and, and wind as it affects as terrain affects the wind and canyons and everything else um also plays a huge part of it. So just going right with a straight, okay, I got my little portable spreadsheet here on my iPhone. I'm going to punch it in. I'm going to be money. That's probably not going to work out for you. But being aware of the effects, the general effects, and maintaining situational awareness of your surroundings, like Brian said, hey, if I'm shooting across... A, a canyon or a gully to where all of a sudden my bullets like 200 feet in the air, um, make understanding that, uh, will help you hit more targets. And yeah. that's what we're really all about.
0: Yeah, totally. And and we are, yeah, we're running out of time. I want to hit a, a couple points on, on the burger side of things, but yeah, this was, that is a great discussion and a great way of putting it. And and we see the Canyon shots and all that out here as well, quite a bit where there is nothing between you and the target. and And that's where you have to kind of, throw in your little personal rule of thumbs and try to say, okay, I'm going to add an extra 10% to this guy. Cause I can't see what's happening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and then, at, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you know hold left edge right 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 yeah, that left edge hold
0: <laughs> <laughs> the left edge um hey guys so yeah I want to wrap up here this little bit we we answer. I'm going through the questions here we got a couple that we answered like one's asking about the bullet weights for King of Two Mile and we talked about that in the last podcast but there is one that comes with and, and we want to kind of wrap up with the, with talking burger and so Ryan on the Podbean app asks about um your meat plat reduction Uh, with the burger bullet lines become standard for all bullets eventually. Are you going to translate that to, to other um, lines within the burger family, or is it just going to stick with the, what is it? The target hybrids, I believe.
1: So um, I think the intent is that these are new products. Um, So uh, we'll probably add more products using, uh, using this technology. Um, and maybe look at some of the legacy products and possibly apply this technology to them. But, you know, not all bullets are great candidates for tipping in terms of like uh, uh, in terms of increasing performance. Uh, So that's really on a case by case basis. I I think, uh, you know, we've talked about this internally and Brian's had some good comments about this, but not all of them are candidates for it. And, um, you know, in the future we'll have more of these products. Um, and a lot of those products are, you know, they kind of dovetail to what request, what our requests are from our customers. So, you know, guys, contact our contact, our tech line, uh, send us, you know, send us uh, emails through the website, asking for products. And that in a huge way influences burgers uh, decisions on what bullets we're going to make. We listen to the shooters, 100 percent. But Brian might have some more about that.
2: Yeah, in particular about the MEPLA reduction technology, That's the the bullets that we're doing that to are the long-range hybrid target bullets. So um, in that application, if it's a long-range bullet and it's a target bullet, then those are the bullets Amo is referring to as the candidates. Um, It raises BC and makes BC more consistent, and that's most relevant for long-range shooting. Now, why targets in particular? Well, hunting bullets, there's a terminal performance aspect to hunting bullets that we don't yet fully understand how closing the tip of a bullet would affect a uh, terminal performance. So we're, you know, we're not going to be pointing the hunting bullets. So that's kind of the category. If it's a long range target bullet, then it's a candidate for the tipping process, the pull reduction.
0: Gotcha. And um, Brian, quick question while you're on there. Um, somebody's asking about the two five seven hybrid you alluded to on Facebook. Do you have any insight that you can tell us?
2: Yeah, we're working on it. Um, you know, I explained our, our design process earlier uh, in an earlier podcast where, you know, um, it, it, ours isn't just a, a one-way street of design it, make it, sell it. Um, our design process is, is iterative. You know, we do testing and development and go back to the drawing board and make improvements, and that's the process we're in now with the 25 cal. Um, when, when we do cross the finish line, it's going to be something that, Has demonstrated through testing is a, you know, best in class performer. Um, and we're getting everything that we can out of the design because we've tried different things. So we're just covering all the bases and being thorough with it. And that's, that's where we're at.
0: Okay. And one other, this got asked twice. So, um, I'm going to just ask it real quick. Um, so it's asking Brian, is there a standard rate of change in BC with change in velocity? They're looking for a rule of thumb is what I'm guessing.
2: Um, there's, there's really not cause it's bullet to bullet dependent. Um, I mean, the only things you can really say for sure is that G sevens have much less change. Uh, G sevens have much less change in BC than G ones as you change velocity. Um, also you can typically say that the G one BC of a bullet will go down as it slows down. Whereas the G seven, uh, because it's kind of splitting through the middle, the G seven BC of a bullet could go up or could go down at low speeds and long range. So, uh, but it's going to change a lot less than a G one. Um, but so there, there is no, um, beyond those observations, there's really no rate that you could apply to all bullets because they're all different. You know, a BC is an attempt to fit a curve to a class of bullets and any bullet in that class will compare differently to that standard. And so that's why uh, you can't have a – I mean, if there was a rule of thumb that says, oh, yeah, every – for every 100 feet a second it changes this much, well, then we would just correct the BC curve so that you didn't have that bias. Um, but the the reality is every bullet's different. So that rate of change will be different.
0: Nice. And I know that's awesome. That's, where,
2: that's, where, the, that's where the custom drag curves come in. So – if you have a custom drag model and you're not using a BC, then there is no change in drag relative to your bullet because you're literally modeling the drag of that individual bullet. That's the only way to get away from that.
0: Cool. And we answered most between the ELR uh, one in, in this one. We've answered most of what we have, but most – I'm just going to end off here and then let you guys kind of give your final wrap-up. Um, everybody, There's a lot of people saying this, but Arnold is uh, – Kind of stands out. He's saying, enjoying the No BSBC series. I think I'm on my fourth and fifth listen of each episode. Keep up the good work. So that's where everybody is. They're out there. They're listening. Um, a lot of the questions, like I said, have been repetitive. Um, I just hit the high ones there. But uh, I want to thank you guys. I want to thank Berger for for putting the series together and reaching out to us. And, and so I know you wanted to do uh, talk about some of that long-range target hybrids. Um, everybody's using them, the great success, uh, you know, it's, it's probably, the, it, it's the top one, two bullet, depending on the caliber and what going on is, is when you look at the events we go to, the events I go to, the burgers are always, you know, one and two somewhere in there, it, it, you know, usually more often number one, but you know, every now and then it's, it's the top two, how do you beat that?
1: Yeah, well, thanks, Brent. I mean, you know, uh, the company started out, uh, Walt Berger making bullets because he didn't think anybody was making, he was, he couldn't find bullets that were made good enough for him. So he made his own and that's still kind of the, um, the philosophy, you know, in the company. Um, and you know, I was a fan. We shot at the AMU before, you know, I ever got this job. Um, but, uh, yeah, so in the future, you know, our long-range hybrid target bullets, uh, you know, we're we're leaning forward. There's new designs on the table. There's stuff coming out. You know, the and this no BSBC campaign, you know, or no BSBC.com, or you can get to it from BurgerBullets.com, uh, is you know really to highlight you know what sets these bullets and what sets Burger apart from a lot of our competitors is that. The uniformity of ballistic coefficient the standard deviation of the BC, which is huge, which translates directly. It's not just a numbers thing. It translates directly to hits on the target and the, the accuracy of your, of your predictions. Um, so, uh, You know we appreciate this forum, Frank, and I really enjoy. You're a great interviewer. I don't know if people have told you that enough, but you are a fantastic interviewer, Um, one of the best. And so uh, this format is great because it's kind of give and take, and uh, you know, lets it lets the outside people kind of get a voice in the conversation. So we really appreciate uh, the opportunity, and uh, you know, and anytime I can, you know, share the stage with Brian and yourself, there's just, uh, you know, I'm learning as much during these as, as anybody,
0: 100%. Yep, and thank both to you and Brian. I mean, I know it comes off sometimes they think I'm confrontational with you guys, but we're passionate. We we laugh after it's done, you know what I mean? And nobody gets that part of it. And so I just want everybody to know that it's not that way. It's it's pushing each other to be better, To you know, and and I do truly appreciate both Brian and Emil being on the podcast and reaching out. It means a lot. And, and, and you guys at the top of your game and, and to kind of come this way, um, it, it, it just validates what I'm doing. But I, I appreciate, uh, you know, everything and all the conversations we have both on and offline.
2: Yeah, likewise, Frank. I, you know, I enjoy these two. It's, you know, I, I would, you know, I would love to spend all day on the phone talking to individual shooters. It just, it's, it's not time. Uh, uh, well spent in, in terms of efficiency, but when we get a chance to to speak to a larger audience, which you um, you know, we're able to do through your podcast, um, it's, it makes very good use of, of of the time to be able to reach a whole lot more people, and and with with such important information too. You know, we Emil talked about the uh, burger's philosophy in terms of product development and you know quality and making things better. Um, and a big part of that is the knowledge that is delivered at the same time because a lot of times you can, you can make something better, um, but if the market doesn't understand how or why it's better or different, then it, it may not do as well. So, the ability to deliver our message and the information, you know, the age old you know, knowledge is power, that's, that's what we're able to do through platforms like this. So, we really appreciate that opportunity to deliver the, the information about what we're doing. Um, Cause we are passionate about all the same things. You know, we're hitting targets is what it's all about and whatever it takes to get there is what
0: we're going to be talking about. Absolutely. No, thank you guys. Uh, all right, man, we're done. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for subscribing to the podcast, go on the Podbean app and comment. Don't forget to go over. I mean, this is transparency burgers, giving you all the information you can honestly ask for. So when you go to the uh, no dot com. That's where you can go after this, or or, or to enhance this, to follow up. Uh, you know, because there's white papers out there. There's there's different. They're they're walking you through the process. They're telling you how to be successful with their bullet. It's your job now to not only listen into what we've been saying, but to go there and follow up and and to understand. You know, this in, in as deep as you need to go. Um, to be successful, and I want to thank, like I said, Berger, Brian, Amel for putting uh, this all together and making it possible. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Frank. Yep. Cheers. We're, Thanks, Frank. We're out. <laughs>
1: okay, listen.